writing and also the beautiful music and the assistance that Skip Taylor is giving to us this uh, summer. I was interested in his statistics from the Hallmark card because I have a very close and dear friend of many years, Bruce Lockerbie, who is the headmaster at the Stony Brook School on Long Island. And Bruce has written a new book, a 1981 book, called Father Love. He is a strongly oriented person toward the family and uh, a very good father himself. And in uh, this book, he says some things that we ought to think about before I read the scripture lesson, which will deal uh, with our subject this morning. Uh, being a father is difficult enough, even with the loving support of a faithful wife and mother. How much more difficult it must be for men without women. But even in those cases in which both parents are in the home, a perplexing sense of being cut off from other people, with their common problems and solutions, sometimes troubles a father. For one man, this sense of distance from his wife and children comes about through her domination over the family. For another, his loneliness is self-imposed, fostered perhaps by a wrong-headed macho attitude or a cultural misunderstanding of the father's proper role. Similarly, for some women, their own father's unfortunate example may altogether color their attitudes toward men. For others, the propaganda and the politics of women's liberation movements may distort their understanding of marriage and the family. The increasing clamor among homosexual men to be allowed to adopt children and by homosexual women to produce their own offspring by means of artificial insemination suggests just how far awry modern attitudes toward family structures and fatherhood have taken us. Some of these modern attitudes are also apparent in the popular representation of fathers. Look at the weekly television programs, both the reruns and current series. The unfavorable portrait of the father remains a constant ingredient in drama and entertainment. The features of a father seen on television are often those of a simpleton, a lout, or a stumble bum, an incompetent, the object of his children's well-deserved disrespect. Soap opera fathers are almost uniformly doctors or lawyers too preoccupied with their professional concerns to know or to care about their wives or children. No wonder then that these neglected women and teenagers wander into disastrous love affairs and juvenile delinquency. Domestic com comedies may offer a greater variety in the occupation of fathers, but these men, whether blue-collar workers or Wall Street bankers, are almost universally portrayed as incompetence. For the most part, among them, there stands Archie Bunker as a prototype father in American culture, a bigot, a racist, a hypocrite, and a chauvinist, the foil of all of his wife's virtues, the dark corner into which the light of his daughter's liberal education must shine. Uh, then he goes on to say this, what today's fathers need is not more abuse from smart alecks on television. Instead, every father needs encouragement to do and to keep on doing what his heart tells him is right, to love his wife and his children, and to teach his sons and daughters to become persons of character. To help him to be this kind of man, every father is looking for a model to emulate an original pattern to copy in his own life. 
but in a world of cheap shots and caricatures which demean the father, where is a man to find what he is searching for? And then he goes into a learned discussion of Christopher Losh's book, The Culture of Narcissism, a very important book that came out a year or two ago about the me culture, which is self-centered, egotistical, and as anti-Christian as anything could possibly be. Uh, Christopher Losh points out that in America, with regard to religion, it is considered as a joke or as inconsequential or as a mere dull ritual. It runs contrary, therefore, to the age and its culture to suggest that the remedy for our national disease and our individual loss uh, uh, should come from religion. But then he goes on to tell us, we, we find in the pages of the Bible references to God as the Father and his design for the family given, its declarations of responsibility of parents for children, of fathers for sons, of sons for fathers, are spelled out in the Law of Moses, in the Psalms, in the Book of Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, in the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, in the letters of St. Paul, and ultimately we find the highest standard in the example of God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are called to follow this example of the Father's love and the Son's obedience and to become the sort of sons and fathers we were meant to be, made in the image and likeness of the Son and his Father. I hope you can get a copy of this book. Uh, it would be a wonderful Father's Day gift, and it um, is a very good scriptural warrant for the responsibility which we should assume in our household of being leaders who bring our families the love of God. And the Lord Jesus teaches us this in a famous story, the most famous and important story that he ever told. There's an old rabbinical saying that God created man because he wanted to tell a story. <laughs> and I like that. God created man because he wanted to tell a story. You've got to tell a story to someone. And the Bible tells us the stories of men and women, real men and women of flesh and bone, like we are. And though we may have satellites and trips to the moon and probes into space, Human nature still has to be dealt with. And this story that Jesus told here is universal in its application and speaks to us poignantly and powerfully today. Again, he said there was once a man who had two sons. And the younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property. So he divided his estate between them. A few days later, the younger son turned the whole of his share into cash and left home for a distant country where he squandered it in reckless living. He had spent it all when a severe famine fell upon that country and he began to feel the pinch. So he went and attached himself to one of the local landowners who sent him on to his farm to mind the pigs. And he would have been glad to fill his belly with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. Then he came to his senses and he said, How many of my 
father's hired servants have more food than they can eat, and here I am starving to death. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he set out for the father's house. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him, and he ran to meet him and flung his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, fetch a robe, my best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us have a feast to celebrate this day. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found, and the festivities began. Now the elder son was out on the farm, and on his way back as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked him what it meant. And the servant told him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and pleaded with him. But he retorted, You know how I've slaved for you all these years. I never once disobeyed your orders, and you never gave me so much as a kid for a feast with my friends. But now that this son of yours turns up after running through your money with his women, you kill the fatted calf for him. My boy, said the father, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. How could we help celebrating this happy day? Your brother here was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. Amen. May God help us to understand just part of the meaning of this blessed part of his word. One reason I read the long quotation to you a moment ago was that before I went to sleep last night, which was a mistake, I read a letter, a heartbreaking letter that was written after a father had heard a sermon on this very passage from which I'm preaching this morning, showing the love of God and how that love is not to be cut off but to be extended. And the father who had sought to raise his son uh, in the church and to teach him Christian things was bitter at the preacher. And he said, you don't know what you're saying when you say that you should go on loving someone like this. And then he began to describe how his son had broken out the church windows, written obscene graffiti all over the walls, how his son had been in and out of trouble, had stolen from them, and he wound up his letter by saying, the truth is that I hate him. He has often been reproved and he has hardened his neck and there is no hope for it. Now the thing that made it so that I couldn't sleep was that I had just this experience with a father who called me long distance early in the morning when he was having his devotions all the way from a state far, far away up north. And uh, his son 
His son had just left for school after family devotions. And there at school, his son, who is 14 years old but big for his age, and proving his macho, had participated in a fight against the little Puerto Rican boy who was held by four other boys while he kneed him in the groin. And the father was called by the principal to come and take him before he called the police to come and get him. And he said, I don't know what to say to him. His mother has cancer, and she's in the doctor's office this morning. What am I going to say? And I said, well, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. And he said the same thing. I don't love him. And I said, you can't help anyone you do not love. God hasn't given up on him, and you must not give up on him either. And last night, another telephone call from New York in another state far away from here, having to deal with a 24-year-old girl who was just bailed out of jail in another town, always in trouble. Where, oh where, can the parents find help? In despair, her mother, a strong Christian woman, wept and said to me, I don't know anyone who really cares or who wants to help. But she said, I know God will answer my prayers, not because of me, but because he will keep his word and he has promised to answer prayer. But the concern and the care of Christian friends, his boyder spirits, and others are wanting to help. Hardly a week goes by that something like this does not occur. These are dramatic episodes, and they hurt. They hurt with an agony that taxes verbal description. Nothing causes us to be filled with more ecstasy and joy than to see our children happy and succeeding and doing well in what they do and living for God with values that are true and right. But nothing hurts us worse than when they go astray. So where shall we get our model? For God's sake, and I say that literally, not from the trash that we so often see on television. We need to go back to the Bible, just as Bruce Lockerbie has said, back to the biblical examples, back to consistent, faithful living under God. Because here we have guidelines. Here we have rules that are needed. Jesus is going to tell stories here in the 15th chapter of Luke. And in the stories that he tells, he winds them up with a succinct uh, little saying, three parables that he gives. The first parable he begins to tell is about a hundred sheep and one that goes astray. And we are given the clue to the whole set of stories because the first line tells us that tax gatherers, and the word tax gatherers sounds very tame to us, but these were real crooks. It says tax gatherers and other bad characters in the translation that I'm reading from the New English Bible. Why were these bad characters gathering around Jesus? It was because he was preaching to them hope. 
He was offering to them hope that God loved them and cared for them. And so he gives this example of how this unusual shepherd, who has 99 sheep accounted for, but one that's astray, who will leave that fold of 99 and go after that one until he finds it. And when he finds it, he will put it upon his shoulders and return rejoicing. That's what made the Pharisees and the scribes mad. Oh, some of them would speak to a publican or a sinner, but they certainly wouldn't eat with them, and they wouldn't rejoice if they were converted. And Jesus knew their hearts, and he wanted to deal tenderly with them. And so he tells them this story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one is lost, but this shepherd is not content to allow that one to be lost, but goes after it and finds it and returns rejoicing. And Jesus says, I tell you there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over you ninety and nine Pharisees and scribes who think you need no repentance. Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, speaks of the Lord Jesus, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Do you know what that means? You don't, I'll tell you. <laughs> Lord Sabaoth is the shepherd who can find his sheep, an efficient shepherd. Lord Sabaoth is a shepherd who finds his sheep, and that's exactly what God is pictured like here and he's not going to rest when a 14-year-old is written off as incorrigible or when a 24-year-old is written off as incorrigible. But he wants the broken-hearted father and mother to know that God cares and he doesn't even judge a person until they're dead. And we ought to be willing to keep on trying to extend hope to them. And so he says there is joy and I should have called this sermon surprised by joy because that's what shocks these Pharisees. And then the ten pieces of silver that the woman has and loses one of them. He doesn't go into detail about how the sheep gets lost. Sheep are dumb. They get lost all the time. Uh, he doesn't go into detail about how the coin is lost. Uh, I don't know how the coin was ever found except the woman looked every place for it. I guess it just shined brighter or something. Anyway... Uh, she found the coin and then called her friends together and probably spent more than the coin was worth having a tea party over finding it. She was rejoicing because the lost coin had been found. And Jesus again puts his little succinct ending to this parable. I tell you there is joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now you see that ending and that ending is, report, is important. Because in his parables, he is often surprising us. He makes a hated Samaritan, a renegade of another race, the hero of a beautiful story that he told. What a surprise. He calls to be one of his disciples, Matthew, one of these hated tax collectors who worked for the Roman government and was a crook. And Jesus calls him to be one of his disciples to walk with him every place. And Jesus enjoyed it. 
Matthew even gave a feast and people came to it. And then he comes to the heart of the story with this Dostoevsky, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, whom some consider to be the greatest novelist to have ever written. Dostoevsky says that this is by far the most exquisite story ever told, the story of these two boys and the father's love for them. And the reason that Dostoevsky says that is that Dostoevsky found the truth of it in his own life. For when as a boy of 28 he was arrested in, in Tsarist Russia and taken into a Siberian prison camp and condemned to 10 years at hard labor, freezing and cynical, two peasant women with a New Testament saw a guard turn his back and they slipped him a copy of the Bible, the New Testament rather, in Russian. And inside at the 15th chapter of Luke was a 25-ruble note which brought him much comfort so he could buy some things while he was there in prison. But he said infinitely more than what he could buy with the money they gave him was what he read when he read the story of the two sons and the love of the father. And if you are a student of Dostoevsky or if you watch Channel 2 television and you sometimes see those classics that Alistair Cook introduces, and if you saw Crime and Punishment, you saw that Sonia, the, the prostitute, the woman of the street, and you saw, uh, you saw the uh, madman who, in his intense nervousness, uh, had killed another person in an erroneous idealism. The two of them meet together in utter despair. And there's a candle in one of the most dramatic scenes. And they wonder what they'll do before Raskolnikov, the killer, is taken by the police. And as the tallow candle burns down, a Bible is open to the 15th chapter of Luke. And the story of the two sons is read. And both Sonia and Raskolnikov's eyes are bathed with tears. And they realize that even for the likes of them, God has an offer of pardon and forgiveness and love. The greatest story ever told. No wonder Dostoevsky loved it. He worked it also into the brothers Karamazov and the other things which he writes possessed. Then look at the story right quickly. The father had two sons, and the one wanted uh, to get his share of the property. It's interesting, he wanted the money more than he wanted his father's love. And so he said to the father, give me the share of the property that's going to come to me. And his father gave him, he gave him his, his share of the estate. Someone asked me yesterday or day before when I told them what I was going to speak on, why would the Father do this? For the same reason that he gives us the freedom every day to obey or disobey him. He gave him his share, and the boy thought he was going to go off and have freedom. Freedom is one of the most bandied about, misused words in the whole world. Every political speech this 4th of July will have freedom in it. Everyone in China and everyone in Russia and everyone in San Salvador and everyone in every country in the world talks about freedom. 
But what is freedom? This boy thought he was going to get freedom. And the best place to get it would be to go into a far country. I can remember as a little boy how I used to walk out on the farm in East Texas and walk down to the railroad tracks and look for the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas train that came from Monette, Missouri to Paris, Texas, and then joined with the Santa Fe and went on west. And I would watch the dining car and see those people sitting there, and I wondered if I would ever get off that farm. Would I ever get off that farm, working out there on the farm? Well, this boy wanted to get away. He thought if he could get away that that would be the answer to it. And his father allowed him the freedom to go away and even gave him the money. And as one preacher put it, and I had some time with Edger Mann this week, and so I can quote it almost like Ed would put it. He put his money on fast women and slow horses. <laughs> He, he, he lost it all in gambling and reckless living. And uh, then he began to be in want. He began to be in want. And there was a famine in that land, and those famines always come at a time like that, and people were hungry. And so he had to go and attach himself to one of the local landowners who sent him out onto his farm to mine the pigs. Now, if you could understand a good kosher lad, and his aversion to pork, to have to go out there and feed the pigs. What a terrible, uh, awful condition this was. One of my dearest friends was uh, Frank Presley, a missionary to Pakistan, who died a few years ago with cancer. And Frank was one of the loveliest people I ever knew in all my life. We were talking about this parable once, and Frank told me that in the rural districts in Pakistan, where there are Muslims who do not touch pork, he said that when he would read this story, these people uh, uh, had never heard it, of course, that when he read that this boy had gone to eat with the pigs, he said they would stop up their ears, and they would scream and spit, and some of them would run out of the room. They couldn't stand the thought of anything so degraded as all of that. But that's how terrible the situation was. He had gone there to eat with the pigs. And then we are told that he came to himself in the King James, or he came to his senses in the New English Bible. And what did he say? He, his pride made him think, I have ruined my relationship with my father, and I cannot go back to him and claim to be his son anymore. But I know that he's got people working on the farm who have more than they can eat. And I'll go back and just ask him for a job if he'd only take me back and make me a hired servant. And that's his religious proposal. And that's why I put it in the bulletin. He wants to get out of this mess. He, he's ended up in a sorry state. And so he tries to dream up some religious proposition to offer to God. And the root of all heresy is salvation by works. And he's going to buy his way back. And he starts back to his father, having memorized his speech. He said I, uh, that he would go back to his father and he will claim I have sinned against God. I've disobeyed the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and mother. I have sinned against God and in your sight. I am not worthy to be called one of your sons. 
treat me as one of your servants. Now, that was the speech he made up. But he never got to make his speech. Because, so he set out, he arose to go to his father's house, but while he was still a long ways off, I was thinking yesterday that I can't see very far anymore without my glasses. And his old father didn't even have any glasses. And yet he saw him a long ways off. I can't make out the faces in the back of this building. But his father saw him a long ways off without glasses. And he knew that that was his boy. He must have been hoping and looking for him to come back. And he did a terribly undignified thing. He ran to meet him. He got up and ran to meet his son. And I want you to always mark it that this is the only time in the Bible that God is ever pictured as being in a hurry. Right here. So that's why that song is so important that Mary sang so beautifully a while ago. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to know your need of him. And he'll see you a long way off. And he'll run to meet you. And he asserts his fatherly authority and does not permit this boy to finish his speech. The boy had thought that when he got out in the far country, he'd buy some fine clothes, but he wound up ragged. But his father says, quick, go get my robe, the best one. Go get a ring and put it on his hand. And go get shoes and put them on the feet. And go get that 4-H club calf that we've been fattening up. We're going to have a feast. We are going to have a feast because I've got my boy back again. And the festivities begin. And then quickly, I wish I had more time for this because the whole point of the story is the elder brother's attitude. The elder brother was out on the farm. He was down on the lower 40. He had been plowing all day, and the sweat bugs had been bad and it had been hot. Maybe there was a lot of grass, a lot of weeds he had to plow through. The end of the day comes, and he starts toward the house, tired, and he hears all this music. And he gets close, and he can see lights on in the house. He thought, what's the matter with the old man? He's been so sad lately. He hadn't had, hadn't had the lights on. I hadn't heard any music in a long time. And he calls one of the servants and asks him, what in the world's going on? And the servant told him, your brother. The servant said, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf. You can almost hear him saying, what? My 4-H club calf. <laughs> he, he killed him. And he's got him back safe and sound. But now look, he was angry. He was angry, and he would not go in. He stayed outside. And just as the father had to run to meet that boy that had gone into the far country, he had to come out of the house and go out there and meet this elder brother who had turned his back and spoiled the joy of everyone inside. I'm sure that that younger son, when he came that way, was hoping that he wouldn't meet that elder brother first. I'm glad he met his father first. And the elder brother began his speech to his father, 
And it's a religious proposal, too. He kept everything he thought, but his heart was all out of harmony with his father. Oh, look at what he says to his father. He is angry, and he explodes in his anger to his father. He was angry and refused to go in. His father went out and entreated him tenderly, pleaded with him, because Jesus loves Pharisees and scribes too. But look at what this boy blurted out. You know how I've slaved for you all these years. I never disobeyed your orders one time. You never gave me so much as a little bitty goat for a feast with my friends. But now that this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours, has turned up after running through your money with his women and killed, you've killed a fatted calf for him. Now look at the father's attitude to him. My boy, in Greek, it's technon. It's an affectionate term. My dear boy. My dear boy, said the father. You are always with me. Everything I've got here is yours. It's all yours. If you'd wanted to eat the calf, we would have eaten it. If you'd wanted your friends, we could have had them. Now, you're angry because I've taken your brother back again. But he said it was right for me to do this. How could we help, said the father, celebrating this happy day? Your brother here was dead, and he has come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. And the story drops right there. It stops. There's no commentary because Jesus wants that story to soak in. What about the elder brother? Are you like him? Has your anger broken the fellowship of the family? If you turn your back on God, you cannot face your brother. First John says, He who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. We will be free when, like Paul, we become a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We will be free when we become slaves of Jesus. Let me close with this brief quotation from the end of Dr. Lockerbie's book. The road back home is prayer. Sometimes it may seem tedious, but the New Testament assures us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. As Christian fathers, we pray both for the rebel and for those sons who remain faithful. We pray for our sons as well as for ourselves. One of my favorite prayers is the famous prayer of Sir Richard of Chichester. It was first prayed 700 years ago and then made popular in the song Day by Day from God's Spell. Thanks to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits which thou hast given me, for all the pains and insults which thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend, and brother, may I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, 
and follow thee more nearly day by day. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion of the fellowship and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper, be and abide with us all, now and forever. <laughs>